I'd like to invite you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. I want to thank Dr. George Zimmick so much for so wonderfully setting the table for that which will occupy us this morning. And that comes to us from the text of Romans 5. We'll be looking at the latter part of this text, but I'll go ahead and read all of it for us. Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. You follow along as I read. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Much more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Marvelous text of Scripture that stands before us. And thus far, we have been seeing from Romans chapter 5 several great implications of our justification. In two messages thus far, from verses 1 to 5, we have discerned that the Apostle Paul has given us four of these great implications. Do you remember what they are? In verses 1 and 2, we see three of them. Namely, one, we've been given peace with God. Two, we've been given participation within the sphere of grace. And three, we have been given the praiseworthy hope of future glory. And from last time's message, when we studied Romans 5, from verses 3 to 5, we see the fourth great implication of our justification, which is we have been given a production of godly character through suffering. Four very Simple yet profound truths. Peace with God, participation within the sphere of grace, praiseworthy hope of future glory, and the production of godly character through suffering. This morning, I want to conclude our study of Romans 5, verses 1 to 11, by seeing two more great implications of our justification from verses 6 to 11. Number five, excuse me, is this. We have been given preeminent love despite our ungodliness and sinfulness. That we see in verses six to eight. We've been given a preeminent love despite our own ungodliness and our sinfulness. And then lastly, number six, we have been given purposeful reconciliation through the death of Christ. That is shown to us in verses 9 to 11. So if you're taking notes this morning, two final great implications from this text. 
a preeminent love despite our ungodliness and our sinfulness, verses 6 to 8, and a purposeful reconciliation through the death of Christ in verses 9 to 11. Let's look at this fifth great implication of our justification from verses 6 to 8, a preeminent love despite our ungodliness and sinfulness. Notice what Paul says. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, before we can even understand this fifth great implication of our justification and the first one, of course, this morning from verses 6 to 8, we need to look back at the latter part of verse 5. Notice it with me. Because, Paul says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you remember when we first discussed this most tremendous truth that God's love has been poured into our hearts or shed abroad in our hearts, as some of your translations may say? Poured into means that God's love has been abundantly extravagantly, effusively, profusely lavished upon us. And that verb form that Paul gives to communicate that truth, he says, has been given to us and continues to be with us. It was given to us at a point in time and it has continuing relevance for us. And you know what Paul is speaking of here in Romans 5.5? It's what the Reformers called the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. It's not necessarily or simply or only that the love of God has been given to us given to us objectively. It is also that we experience that love subjectively. We have the inner witness of the Holy Spirit that we are assured to be children of God. God loves us. And He communicates that love by lavishly, profusely pouring this love via the Holy Spirit's work into our hearts so that we then can subjectively have the assurance that Christ is in us, that Christ is with us, that Christ has saved us. It is the subjective inner testimony or reality that the Holy Spirit within our hearts assures us that we are the children of God. You can know that love. You can experience that assurance if Jesus Christ lives in you. You can know that now and you can know that forever. The Holy Spirit has been given to us And with Him, the love of God has been profusely poured out into our hearts. And it gives us an assurance that Jesus Christ can be known by us in an intimate way. And if you notice in your Bibles, verse 6 begins with that little connector word, for. Linking it up, of course, with the previous verse. This means that Paul wants to expand on the theme of the love of God toward us. It's his way of explaining more of the depth of the love of God for his people. And what does he say about this love? Well, he tells us two things specifically. Notice the first in verses 6 and 7. He tells us that while we were still weak and ungodly, Christ died for us at the precise time necessary. He wants to emphasize that aspect of God's love for us. And secondly, in verse 8, he tells us that even in spite of our sinful condition, God shows His infinite love for us by having Christ die for us. You say that sounds pretty simple? Profound, yes, but simple. Oh, it is, but there's so much here. Let's unpack verses 6 and 7 and see exactly what Paul wants to teach us about this magnanimous love of God. If you look at verse 6, we could set up what we might call a syllogism, which is a logical scheme in argumentation, in logic. You might go to logic class and you might be taught a syllogism. 
which has a major premise and a minor premise and then a conclusion from those two premises. And of course, whatever your conclusion is must be true if the premises are true. If you have a true minor premise and a true major premise, then your logical conclusion will be true. And verse 6, six sets up this syllogism by stating that human beings are weak and sinful. That's the major premise. Human beings are weak and sinful. And Paul uses two specific terms here to speak of our fallen human condition. What are they? He says we are weak and we are ungodly. We are without strength. That's how I think the New King James Version has it. We are without strength. We are weak. We are unable. We have an inability to respond to God. We are weak in our sinfulness, unable to respond to Him. It's a part of the very fabric of what we are in our beings. It's the truth of God. And because of this, we are unlovely. We merit nothing before God. We deserve nothing except God's wrath and curse. There should be no reason why God should spread His love all over us and in us and through us. It shouldn't happen. But verse 7 gives us the minor premise. It says that on a horizontal level, that is from man to man, not on a vertical level, God to man, but on a horizontal level, human beings are said to be dying for one another, but said to be doing it in a very scarce way. The only time it might occur is that someone could or might or possibly should die for the best of men. That's all it's saying. It's all that Paul wants to communicate with that. He's not trying to make a distinction between a righteous person and a good person per se. He's not trying to delineate the idea that, you know, some person uh, wouldn't die for a righteous person, but scarcely, possibly, perhaps someone would die for a good person. You wouldn't be able even that necessarily to differentiate between a righteous person and a good person. This is simply saying, attempting to make the point that yes, it is true that perhaps for the best men, someone out there would dare even to die. That's the minor premise. And here's his point. His point is that human love, at its very best, at its highest, at its greatest, will motivate possibly someone or someone's in this world to give his or her life for a good person. It's rare, Paul says, for anyone to be willing to die for another, and the only time it could occur on a human level if it was uh, would be if there was a man, someone there, someone out there, someone else who thinks that someone is worthy enough for you and me to die for them, to give up our own life. But certainly, it is rare indeed for this to occur. That's why he says, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. That's the minor premise. Major premise, we're all weak, we're all sinful, we're all fallen, we have no ability to respond to God, we are unable. The minor premise, someone would perhaps die for another person that they would perceive as good, someone that they perceive might be worthy of dying for. Which brings us to the logical conclusion of verse 8. But God shows, demonstrates, or even this, proves. But God proves His love for us, weak, ungodly persons, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved, what a profound thought. Here is the comparison, or maybe even ultimately the contrast, between these two. If someone is going to dare even to die for a good person out there in the world, what is the height and the depth and the magnanimity of God's love when instead of His Son dying for a good person, Christ instead dies for the weak, for the ungodly, for sinners? You see the point? Instead of God being willing to die for some good person who expresses love for the one dying for them, He sends instead His Son to die for people who otherwise hate Him. That's the point. The point Paul is making is, look, you've got a major premise here that there are people in this world, all of them, nobody excluded, who are weak and sinful and vile and wicked... 
And then you have some people in the world who might be perceived by somebody as virtuous, as, as being willing to die for. Uh, maybe you've got a combat buddy that you say, I'm, I'm willing to give up my life for this person because I perceive that they are tough. I perceive that they are giving their all and I'll give my all for them. Or maybe a, a husband or a father uh, might be willing to give up his life for the sake of his wife or his children. I'll be able to do that because I think they're worthy Perhaps, maybe, somebody out there would die for someone like that. Perhaps. But the question is, who would die for people who are unworthy? Who are sinners? Who have nothing within themselves to merit such an act? Who are ghastly, wicked, reprobates? You say, who is in that category? Everyone! Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all in that camp. There are none of us that are worthy. You think somebody has a magnanimous love who would be willing to die for their spouse? It's not even a comparison. You think somebody would be willing to die in a foxhole for a buddy that they think they know well? who they think is giving up their cause in death, you think that's love? doesn't even compare. It's absolutely incomparable to the love that Jesus Christ gave on the cross for people who are absolutely unworthy. That's Paul's point. Look back at verse 6. For while we were still weak, we were out without strength. He says at the end of that verse, we were ungodly. He says in verse 8, that while we were still sinners, notice that, weak, ungodly sinners. He's comparing two kinds of love. One, a love that might be expressed by someone, but only when the person they're dying for is shown to be worthy of that love. And since we're not worthy of that love, then why would Christ die for us? You know what the answer is? The love of God. The love of God. Nothing in us. Nothing inherent within us. Nothing that we did that merited that. I didn't jump in a foxhole for God. I didn't take a bullet for my family, for God, to show God my worthiness. And you know, there are people there in the world, and you know them, and I know them, and we meet them, we work with them, we may even live with them, who say, but look, isn't there something within man? Uh, Doesn't God say about man in Psalm 8 that He's created just a little lower than the angels? I mean, isn't there something even in God's mind that would say that mankind is worth something? Some vestige, even though the fall of mankind has occurred, some vestige of good? Some spark of divine life? Something that would show God that they are worthy of that love, even if to the smallest infinitesimal degree? No. Now, that's the whole point of verses 6 to 8. That we don't deserve that love. That we can't ever merit such a love. That we are not worthy of such a love. And that yet, even in spite of our ungodliness and our sinfulness, Jesus Christ has died. Given up His life. Do you see this amazing love? How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Do you see those phenomenal words in verse 6? Christ died for the ungodly. The righteous for the unrighteous. Verse 8, Christ died for us. He died in our place. His was a vicarious, substitutionary sacrifice. 
And you put the two together, he died for the ungodly and he died for us. And Paul is describing the fact that Jesus Christ has died for the ungodly, which is to say that he died for us, meaning the Roman believers and beyond them, not simply them, but the elect, the church, the bride of Christ, the redeemed of all the ages. This is, this is incredible. I mean, you might find a guy out there, some woman who'd say, look, I'm, I'm willing to give up my own life for so-and-so because I believe that they're worthy of such love. They're worth dying for. That's what we might say. They're, they're worth dying for. Paul compares that kind of love and says, Jesus Christ died for those who were inherently unworthy, who didn't deserve it. They should have perished. Why? Because they're flagrantly shaking their fist in the face of God and say, I don't want your lordship in my life. I don't want you. I know you created me, but I will not live under your dictates. I will not follow your commands. I will not do what you say. I will live my life on my own. Thank you very much. And that's us. And that's not a pretty picture, but that's us. And yet, the magnanimity of this love, for while we were still weak, we, we didn't have any strength. We, we couldn't reach out to Christ because our limbs are broken. That's our depravity. And we didn't have anything inherent within us because it says Christ died for the ungodly. And we didn't have this spark of divine life in us because it says God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners. You see the chronology here? Ungodly, weak, without strength, sinful people. And Jesus Christ takes the initiative to die for us. And don't miss it. Paul says, at the right time. God's always on time. Maybe not your time clock, maybe not mine. But in His, He's perfect in the kairos of time, in the very season of time that was right, in the very moment that we needed redemption, Christ provided it in the nick of time. Oh, brothers and sisters, you know of that kind of love. You know experientially of this amazing love that God has for sinners. You bow in humble adoration to the one who has secured redemption for his people. Are you one of his people? You are if you have tasted the overwhelming love of God in Jesus Christ and acknowledge about yourself that you are weak, that you are ungodly, that you are sinful, and at the right time Christ Jesus died for you. And God gave you the faith and the repentance to believe and turn and you did so. And the Holy Spirit was just infused into your life, into the body of Christ, this lavish, profuse love that assures us that we do indeed know Jesus Christ. If you're sitting there and you're acknowledging the truth about your fallen human condition, and you're acknowledging the truth about Jesus Christ dying for the weak and the ungodly and the sinful, then you know of that assurance. You know of that love. We have a preeminent love. It's not like the love that someone would muster up in this life that would possibly die for someone else. Oh, we might see that as a hero kind of love. And we prance these people about on television and we talk about these heroes... And we tell people all over the world how courageous so-and-so is for dying for another. But there are strings attached. Strings attached to that kind of love. It may even be not that we see something so worthy in somebody else, but we want someone in dying for them to see their worthiness, our worthiness. That We want people to see that we're something special. In and of itself, sinful, biased. No, Christ died so that you and I could have redemption even in spite of our unworthiness, in spite of our sin. Oh, what a great truth. It's a great implication of our justification. 
And the sixth and final great implication of our justification, it's, it's in verses 9 to 11. It's our second this morning, but it's the sixth overall, and it is God's purposeful reconciliation through the death of Christ. What words? What words? Look at verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that... We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You say, what's going on here? Paul gives us some more logical deductions. In three distinct ways, he argues in these verses for our assurance of salvation. Sort of coming underneath the surface of this is the assurance factor again. Not just the assurance that God's love has been spread abroad in my heart, not profusely poured into my life, but also the assurance of the tremendous implication of justification, namely called my reconciliation. Paul shows us the very purpose for our reconciliation. What are they? Notice I said there were three of them. Let's talk about the first one. He wants to argue in these verses from what we might say is the greater to the lesser. We talked about a syllogism before. This is another kind of argument. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. For instance, in verse 9, he says, Since therefore God has already declared us not guilty in His sight, that's what justification means, not guilty, if He's already declared us not guilty in His sight through the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross which was our greater need, much more can He deliver us from coming judgment, the lesser need. You say, really? Coming judgment would be our lesser need? Yes, when you compare it to our greater need, the greater need of salvation before that judgment comes. That's right. We need God to do something to us now. We have a great need right now. Yes, judgment will come, but if we can get... The idea across that what God has done now, it will prepare us for the then. You see, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God can be depended upon to deliver us from death and hell's penalty, don't you think He can deliver us from sin's presence? That's the idea. If God has brought us to the place of actually saving us, delivering us from death and hell. Don't you think He's able to deliver us from the ultimate consequences of it? Sure He is. Don't you see the much more phrase in verse 9? I know it sounds maybe like an argument from the lesser to the greater because He says much more for the second phrase. But His argument's flow suggests actually the opposite. Can't God much more deliver us from His ultimate wrath since He has already now declared us not guilty for our sin? That's it. If you are saved right now, a present tense declaration about your life, a declaration of acquittal, which is the greater need of our present lives, if God can do that, how much more will you be saved in the ultimate day of judgment, which is the lesser need of our future lives? And you know what this does? It reminds us of that threefold tense of salvation. Salvation for the believer is present tense, progressive continuing tense, and future tense. That's it. Here in Romans 5.9, we are said to have already been justified by Christ's blood. That's past tense. That's a punctiliar. That's a point in time. It's a dot on the screen. That tells us that something happened. And it happened to us in past tense. What does Paul call that? He calls that justification. That's justification. 
And you know in 2 Corinthians 2.15, for instance, just to use one verse, that Paul says that we are an aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Speaks of the present tense of salvation, or what we can commonly call our sanctification. And then, of course, there's an ultimate salvation, when we will be ultimately delivered. That's called our glorification. Those are the three tenses of salvation. Past, present, and future. Even our sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 1.9, will evolve into our glorification. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, it says that God raised Jesus from the dead so that He would deliver, save, that's the word, sozo, deliver us from the wrath to come. God's going to do it. Paul's point is, don't you think if God has already declared you justified by the blood of Christ, He can also deliver you from ultimate judgment? You say, what's the relevance of that? Why, why would that be a great implication of our justification? I'll tell you. Because at that time, people were being martyred for their faith. People were suffering for their faith. People were giving up their lives for the faith. Even the disciples at one point said to Jesus, if, if you go away, what are we going to do? What is there for us? What's going to happen to us? It's an inevitable question, isn't it? God, what, what's the future? What's out there? What are we going to do? What's going to happen? What's going to go on with our lives? Here's Paul's point. Don't you think if God has saved you now, don't you think if He's justified you by the blood of Jesus Christ that He can take care of you in the future? You better know it. If He can do that greater thing, cause you to be born again to the living and abiding Word of God, cause you to be redeemed, cause you to be reconciled by God's grace, cause you to be justified in His sight, don't you think if He can do that now, He can deliver you ultimately? Sure. Sure He can. By the way, you want to see this in one verse, all three tenses? Look at Romans 6.22. Just, just one little page over. Romans 6.22. I love this. But now, but now that you, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, that's justification. You've been set free from sin. There it is. Justification. That happened at a point in time. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. There it is, sanctification. And its end, eternal life. There's glorification. It's incredible. One verse. You've been set free by your justification from God. You will be progressively made like Jesus Christ, your Lord, in your sanctification. That's the fruit bearing of your life. And you will receive the fullest aspect of your sanctification. That's eternal life. That's glorification. And Paul's point here in verse 9 of Romans 5 is that since God has granted you present tense salvation already, your justification, how much more will He provide your glorification, which is the escaping of eternal destruction and wrath? You can trust God for that, can't you? Even if you're beaten down. Even if you're seemingly destroyed. Even if you're suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Even if there are trials and temptations in your life, you can know that if you are justified in the sight of God, you can deal with anything because God has a plan and it's going to include even the taking of your life all the way through eternity. That's the greater to the lesser. I want you to notice another argument, greater to the lesser in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more... Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life? Oh, he's arguing from the reality of the death of Christ. That's the greater need of our enemy-like status with God to the resurrection life of Christ. You see what he's doing? Which for them and for us would be the lesser need once we've already been reconciled to God. Here's what he's saying. If when you were those enemies of God, hostile toward Him and hating Him with a vengeance, yet you were reconciled, that is, you were brought into a love relationship with Him via the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, how much more then, since that has already occurred, shall you be saved, delivered, resurrected yourself by His resurrected life? Much more shall you be saved by His life. 
This is a tremendous truth. This is, this is guaranteeing the resurrection life for the believer. You don't have to fear judgment. You don't have to feel permanent separation from God. You can take God at His word. And that's why He says what He says. If while we were enemies, past tense, we were reconciled to God, historical present, anybody who was an enemy of God, but who has been reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. If God can do the reconciling in the first place, don't you think He could save you, resurrect you, redeem you ultimately and fully by the life of Christ, presumably there, the resurrection of Christ? Arguing first from the death of Christ and then to the life of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. He was raised to new life. You think if God can do the greater work of reconciliation, He can bring you to the place of resurrection life as well? I think so. And isn't it interesting to note that in this parallel of verse 10 with verse 9, He substitutes reconciliation for justification. Because notice, he was talking about justification, verse 9. And then he switches and he says we were reconciled. So in one place he talks about justification. And in another place, verse 10, he's talking about reconciliation. Some people say, well, that probably means that they're synonymous terms. Not exactly. They mean different things. They're in the corpus. They're under the umbrella. But it doesn't mean they're equivalent. It rather means that they are complementary of one another. They complement one another. Justification is that legal term, that law court phrase that says we are declared to be not guilty. Reconciliation is borrowed from Paul from the realm of human relationships. And it's talking about an enmity with one another, a hostility toward one another, and that God has come to bring peace in the midst of hostility. One is declaring something about us, Reconciliation is bringing us to God. It's bringing God to us. Speaks of the fact that whereas two people were at odds with one another, enmity toward one another, there's now been a reconciliation, a meeting together, a coming together, a friendship. And where there was once hostility, there is now peace. Peace. That's why he says in verse 1, doesn't he, of chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's an implication of our reconciliation. We have peace with God. God brings the reconciling peace that we so desperately need. Oh, this is a great word. I've often heard people speak of the fact that we need new terms, we need new words, we need new ideas to communicate afresh. To people. And they talk about unbelievers coming into the church and talking with them. And you can't use these kinds of words. You can't talk about justification. You can't talk about reconciliation because people don't know what that means. Well, first of all, I think they do know what it means. And I think even if they didn't, you can teach them. Because you know what? These are God's words. These are God's words. Katalasso. That is the word for reconciliation. And that is a word which anyone can understand. Even the smallest child can understand where there has been hostility, where there has been enmity, where there has been fighting, where there has been bickering, where there has been debating. Whatever words you want to use, God gives us the opportunity by His initiation to be at peace. We ought to understand that. Remember last week that you sweeped through the Bible to see some of this grand theme of reconciliation. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. Anyone can understand this now. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God has made peace with you. You've made peace with God. Now go out and you serve others so that they too can make peace with God. He can make peace with them. Nothing hard to understand about that. 
Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. Speaking of the Jews and the Gentiles being brought together in one new man. Paul says this, But now in Christ Jesus you were once far off. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. Even using peace with a capital P, Christ is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Everybody can understand what that means. You have a hostile relationship with someone and someone else comes in as a mediator and they mediate between the two and the hostility and he brings the two into one and he creates peace with the killing of hostility between the two. Everybody can understand that. And everybody should. This is God's Word, reconciliation. Colossians 1, 19-22 For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, there it is, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. Here, beloved, is an unfathomable truth. Here's what Paul says in Romans 5. Here's where he says elsewhere that hostility and anger and biting and devouring one another and saying no to God and yes to my sin can end. It can end. It can be over. Fighting with God. Battling with God. The battle for the will. You want to do this? You know God wants you to do the other. You keep going your way. You keep telling God you'll be the master of your own ship. You'll be the captain of your own destiny. You keep telling God that and there will continue to be enmity. Does not James say in his epistle that those who continue friendship with the world, they have enmity with God. Keep being a friend of the world, going to be an enemy of God. But it doesn't have to be that way. There can be peace. Peace. We deserve His wrath. We deserve His judgment. That's why Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. We're sitting on the box of truth and we don't want the truth out. What is the truth? The truth about ourselves. The truth about who we are. The truth about our desire to alienate ourselves from everybody because everybody won't do what I want them to do. They won't bend to my will. They won't do what I say. And yet God, even in the midst of all of that, even in the midst of my sin and my rebellion, in my heinous debauchery, God says, I offer you Christ, who died for the ungodly, who died for someone like you. I offer you this peace, and incredible as it is, even though He's the sinless one, and I'm the sinful one, He takes the initiative. Look, look back at Romans chapter 3. He takes the initiative. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace. How? As a gift. It's a gift to us. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And notice verse 25, Whom God put forward. God did it. He put Christ forward as a propitiation, another great word, a satisfaction by His blood, by the shedding of the blood of Christ to be received by faith. God did it. Even in our own text, God shows His love for us even while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. What would we do? What would we do if Jesus Christ hadn't come to die for us. Where would we be? 
What ungodliness and unrighteousness would we be involved? What would we say? What would our lives be like? And what would be for us in eternity? Christ stepped out of eternity into time. And He gave us redemption. What great news for the entire universe. Do you know of this reconciliation? Do you know of it? As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I beg you. Don't stand in eternity without being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Without being reconciled. Hostility turned into peace. Don't you want the peace of God? Don't you want to know that at the moment of your death, whether it be today or tomorrow or whenever, that you have peace with God? Peace. No hostility. A rightness with God. He said to you at a point in time, He's mine. Not guilty. Acquitted. Oh, what a glorious thought. But what would this lead us to? It leads us right to verse 11. Look at it. More than that. You say, more than that? Yes, more than that. We also rejoice in God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I say, how can it be more than that? How can it be more than I have peace with God? How can it be more than I'm justified by His blood? How can it be more than I'm reconciled to God through Christ? How can it be more than that? It can. In this life, you can even rejoice about it. That means a bunch of snarly, unsmiling Christians can be happy. You can be happy. Not giddy. Happy. You can say... I'm on my way to heaven. Tell somebody who's a Roman Catholic that. Evangelize them. Talk to them about Christ. Ask them if they have the assurance of their salvation. Ask them if they know whether or not today, if they were to die right now, they'd stand before God and He would say to them, Come into my kingdom. On what basis would they say such a thing? Listen to them. Listen to them speak. Not just them and so many others. You have the gift To be able to express to them, I have the assurance that Jesus Christ is mine. He's mine. And you can rejoice. That's what it says. Rejoice. Boast in God. That's the only proper response from somebody who's now a friend of God, right? You have this hostile relationship and God put forward by His own initiative, Jesus Christ, who came to die in your place and once that transaction has been secured by the death of Christ on the cross and you put your faith and trust in Him, you've been reconciled and that reconciled relationship means not hostility but peace. That's something, that's something to rejoice in. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4.4, 4, I say rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Why? Because God's granted me peace. Peace. You're reconciled to the God of heaven. And one day you're going there. Does that just stir your heart to rejoice? If not, you may be spiritually sluggish. And you need a message like this today to get your spiritual juices flowing. To get out there and evangelize those who don't know Christ. To speak to your wife and children, to your husband and children with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. To be able to do your work, your service, your ministry with the kind of rejoicing and joy that speaks of the fact that you are serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That you have the opportunity to say to God, thank you, thank you for not bringing this hostility forever into my life. But breaking the bondage of sin to give me the truth of Jesus. Oh, how peace can come into our hearts. And you can rejoice in that. Bow your heads with me. You can rejoice even now. If you're not rejoicing today, 
It may be because you've lost sight of your reconciled relationship with God. Have you lost sight of it? You have your focus on yourself and your problems instead of the fact that your salvation draws near. Oh, this, this hostility, this enmity, it has been broken in your life. Why do you live as though it doesn't? Why do you behave as though it hasn't? You say, well, it may be because I, I really am not assured that I have a reconciled relationship with God. Maybe that's the case. Maybe your lack of rejoicing is due to the fact that you don't have a reconciled relationship with God in the first place. And so I beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Say to Jesus, I have hostility in my heart and I have sin in my life. I have evil in my soul. Please deliver me. Please don't let this be a barrier between me and you, God. Thank you for taking the initiative to bring the Lord Jesus Christ wrapped in those swaddling clothes through the manger out of those smelly stalls into a world of sin and indignity so that He might live that righteous life and that He might give us this peace which we so desperately need. Lord, I need that peace. I must have it. Give me Christ. Allow Him to be the mediator between You and Myself. Let Christ be my Savior and my Lord. Bring me peace. Those who have been justified by faith have peace with God. Thank You for this peace. Now bring into my life those who might help me grow and understand how I can live with this peace that I've received. And let me be a light to others. Let me be one who learns and grows and obeys Your Word and shares this great news of peace with others. Lord, I pray that You would bring those who have come today without an assurance to a place of settled peace. May that be the prayer of us all. Thank You for this great text and for granting us the assurance of peace through Jesus Christ. Amen.